This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And we are Publishers Weekly Reviews Editors. We edit the book reviews that you see excerpted on book jackets that you pick up in the bookstore or that you order from certain enormous online retailers, as I suspect a lot of you are doing around this time of year. I handle the genre fiction which means science fiction, fantasy, horror, and romance. And as a senior editor uh, at Publishers Weekly, I handle, uh, in the reviews department, I handle books, uh, memoirs, sports books, uh, adventure, travel, and cookbooks, as well as uh, editing Why I Write, which are uh, essays uh, contributed by writers uh, on any given topic. You can find out a lot more about all this stuff if you hit publishersweekly.com. But the point of Publishers Weekly Radio is that we're going to be connecting a little bit more directly with readers. Publishers Weekly is a trade publication. We pretty much talk to publishers and publishers talk to us. And it can feel very insulated sometimes, like our own little world. So we want to break out of that, reach out to readers, reach out to you and uh, tell you a little bit more about what's coming out that you should be excited about. Introduce you to some of your favorite authors and also hear a little bit more about what your interests are, what you want to know about publishing and uh, kind of break down that wall for you too. Yeah, basically share our knowledge of everything. Yes, so, exactly. Uh, whatever we might know. Because we do know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close to it, Rose, I think. Um, one of the things that Publishers Weekly does is publish lists of bestsellers. Um, these lists come out every week and uh, we get the numbers from Nielsen Bookscan, which is a name that you might know from Nielsen Ratings or from the folks who bring you the charts and Billboard. Uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit about some of this week's bestsellers because there's some uh, interesting stuff happening on Well, it. noticing in our conversation we had earlier, Rose, I, I noticed that um, there are quite a bit of romance holiday books, and they all seem to be of a genre, maybe? Yeah, this, so this is, this is one of those interesting phenomena that I've seen in the romance world. One of the things I love about editing romance reviews is that I get to talk about romance like these are real books, uh, because they absolutely are. These, are. these are books with their own interests, with a huge readership, uh, mm-hmm. and, and romances have their own genre conventions, uh, these things that readers expect. And around this time of year, what readers expect are Christmas romances. And it turns out they're all over the place, and they're all over the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. And the, the top 50, I found nine of them, and there might be more. Uh, and these are big, big names, like Debbie McComber has, has two of them, actually. Robin Carr, Fern Michaels, these are people who reliably hit the bestseller list. Right. Now, do, do someone like Deb McComber, would she do a... Uh, a Christmas book every year, or yeah, or is probably. It, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, she ha- she might do one in a series. Um, some of these authors have series of Christmas romances, so mm-hmm. every year they come out with another Christmas romance that follows on the Christmas romance from the year before. And others of them might come out with a uh, Christmas romance in an established setting. Uh, so. We have Laurie Wilde has A Cowboy for Christmas, and this ties into some of her other Western titles, for example. Um, and, and, you know, some of these romance series are very long, long running. Uh, they take a small town and pretty much everyone in that town gets their chance at love, their chance to find their happy ever after. And some of those things are just going to happen at Christmas time. Oh, sounds great. Like now, now, with this list, you said you saw you've seen nine 
Yeah. Christmas um, ones. Are there, I mean, have you seen a connection to any of these, or is it anything a sh- little more surprising? Um, they're they're all set, uh, as I said, uh, either in small towns or mm-hmm. in a Western milieu. So right. uh, another big category of romance that I would have expected to see represented is the historical romance, right. like Regency romances or Victorian romances, the sort of lords and ladies, big flowing dresses, the kind of thing they used to call bodice rippers. Right, right. Uh, we try to think of ourselves as a little more sophisticated these <laughs> right. days, but um, yeah, still the occasional bodice gets ripped, I admit it, but I didn't see any of those on here, which I'm a little surprised by. They certainly do exist, Regency Christmas romances. Right. And in fact, um, in Publishers Weekly, we recently published an interview with Victoria Alexander about uh, her recent Christmas romance called What Happens at Christmas. And you see a lot of these very funny titles. Uh, my favorite is still I Kissed an Earl. But <laughs> an earl, as opposed to an elf, as as opposed to I kissed. Oh, kiss an earl, an earl, <laughs> right, right? So um, you know, you'll 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 get these references to popular right. culture. Um, so her book is called What Happens at Christmas, mm-hmm. and uh, we asked her what's up with the Christmas romance, and here's what she had to say. Regardless of your religious beliefs, it's a special time of year. People are kinder and more generous. Strangers smile at one another on the streets. The air is full of promise and optimism. I think that's why it's so appealing as a setting for romantic fiction. So there you have it, straight from bestseller Victoria Alexander, why all these Christmas romances are happening. Oh, so what... What other titles do you have on there? What, what can uh, people look forward to seeing? Well, certainly, um, as I said, Debbie Maycomber has mm-hmm. a couple on there. So at number seven is 1225 Christmas Tree Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number eight is Glad Tidings. And then a little further down the list, Robin Carr's My Kind of Christmas, M- Fern Michaels's A Winter Wonderland, and in the Western end of things, Linda Lale Miller's A Lawman's Christmas. So wow. you can certainly find those all on the shelves right now if a Christmas romance is your sort of thing. For uh, gifts or for uh, anything else, I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I am Rose Fox, also on Publishers Weekly Radio. You are listening to the Publishers Weekly weekly radio show where we talk about what's hot and what's happening in the book world. Mark, what's on the bestseller list that caught your attention? And right now, yeah, we're, uh, the, we're talking about the bestseller list uh, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And as I'd mentioned, I, I handle cookbooks uh, as one of my categories. And maybe it's not so surprising that on our list, if you look at the top 25, um, we have six cookbooks wow. that are on that list. That's on the nonfiction? On the nonfiction list, exactly. That's very impressive. Uh, the first one is uh, landing at number two. This is about two weeks ago, is Ina Garden. Uh, she's always hot. Everyone loves Ina Garden. Whenever she comes out with a cookbook, she happened to uh, knock Bill Riley, Bill O'Reilly off the list, uh, his Killing Kennedy book, uh, two weeks ago. And this book is called Full, Foolproof Cooking. And But is it really? Actually, I think it is. That's, yeah, it's pretty that's very foolproof. Impressive. She's she has amazing number of uh, recipe testers that she goes over and over, and she, uh, they check everything. And her recipes in general are, are pretty foolproof. And this one just kind of puts puts the exclamation point right on it. So is this like an America's Test Kitchen, Cooks Illustrated kind of thing? Like, do they have a whole laboratory where they go through and do a hundred? iterations of something just to make sure that it's going to come out exactly right when you make it for your Christmas dinner? I, I don't know. if they, I don't think she exactly has that that kind of kitchen, though, by the way, the uh, number number 26, almost number 25 is America's Test Kitchen. Oh, see, there the you go. The science of good cooking. So very good, Rose. Well, I'm a <laughs> You're fan. Right there. I'm a fan. You know, I, I just I just uh, re-upped my subscription to Cooks Illustrated. I think I, I love having these tested recipes. Um, so if there's another source for it, I certainly want to know all about it. Ina Garden's a good person to go to, I think. Good to know. 
After that, we have uh, The Four-Hour Chef. This is by Tim Ferriss. Now, Tim Ferriss is kind of a uh, uh, motivational speaker, uh, but he's also had a couple of books, The Four-Hour Body and The uh, Four-Hour Work Week. So this is The Four-Hour Chef, which is at number three. It's published by New Harvest, which to our listeners out there, is an Amazon uh, imprint, uh, one of the books that Amazon is doing. So as I understand it, a lot of these Amazon books aren't being uh, sold in Barnes & Noble uh, or other bookstores because they regard Amazon as a competitor, since Mm -hmm. Amazon is both making books as a publisher and selling them as a bookstore. So if it's only being sold on Amazon, how did it still hit these big national bestseller lists? That's a good question. Uh, I I think that just the, uh, the the number of books. I mean, I think other I think other bookstores might be carrying them. I'm not too sure, but I, I, I'm not too sure how uh, that one came about. Which is which is a good question. But I know that Amazon uh, uh, has been taking on a lot of. Pretty well-known writers, and, mm-hmm. and this is one of them. Someone who they know will will sell a lot of books. So he's got a brand. He's got a brand, yeah. Yeah, his own website, his own speaking engagements. I mean, he's pretty well-known. Uh, and after that, we have a blogger, Deb Perlman, who uh, is coming out with the Smitten Kitchen Cookbook. This is something I think you might like. Okay. Uh, and and it's, it just, it's just – it's just – it's a uh, uh, very handy, heartwarming – I don't want to say heartwarming, but it's a, a very solid cookbook. Um, advanced, um, but but – but pretty, but and, and solid. After that, uh, we have Rachel Ray's "My Year in Meals," and at number twenty is something new called the Fifty Shades of Chicken. <laughs> True. Well, let's By hope it's not author. Fifty Shades of Gray Chicken because oh, that no. sounds revolting. No, 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 no. And this one, this one is uh, the uh, Spread Eagle Chicken is one recipe. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Get There's another one. Yes, yes. I think one is called uh, uh, Dripping Thighs. Uh, yes, Mark, yeah, you yeah. are making this no, up. No, 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 and this is by F. L. Fowler. Of is a pen is. name as a pen name <laughs> of what is apparently, from what I'm told, a very well known chef. And Clarkson Potter, the publisher, won't tell us who this is, but really? it's been doing well. I looked at the cookbook; solid recipes. I mean, it, it's all pretty tongue in cheek, uh, complete as, with as a, it uh, were, as it right. <laughs> <laughs> And then after that, down the line, we have Thomas Keller's Bouchon Bakery and uh, Lee Drummond's The Pioneer Woman Cook. So, again, I, I think maybe like the uh, romance books, these cookbooks are uh, perfect for the holidays and starting to hit the list now. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And we are going down the bestsellers this week uh, as published in Publishers Weekly with numbers provided by Nielsen Bookscan. Now, I'm going to take a look at another trend in books. Tell Um, me. Again, probably good for the holidays, and these are music bios. We've been seeing more and more of these, or at least I've been seeing more and more of these land on the list. We have five on the top 25. First one, number 11, is Willie Nelson, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die. That is a great title. It's good. It's good, yeah. And he's he talks about his life on the road, musings mm-hmm. about traveling, singing, songwriting. Um, after that is a, uh, a biography by Peter Carlin of Bruce, Bruce called Bruce, of Bruce Springsteen. And this uh, came out about four weeks ago, right about the time that uh, Bruce Springsteen did a benefit concert for Hurricane oh, Sandy. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And that... that. that it, Kind of audit. Uh, he was doing that right about the time this hit the list. Uh, and then Neil Young, who I don't know if you remember at our BEA, 
uh, uh, Book Expo America. We we did a show then. Oh yeah. Uh, he was one of the headliners uh, for right. there for Neil Young, and this mm-hmm. is waging heavy peace. And then at number twenty one, Rod Stewart offers what many consider to be a pretty funny uh, autobiography. Oh, I can only um, imagine. I, I mean, he just he. He tells it. I mean, he tells it as it is. I mean, he he talks about his you know, early music career, a lot of uh, talk about uh, his you know, touring on the road, mm-hmm. uh, some pretty pretty great, sometimes sorted stories. And then after that, we have Pete Townsend of the Who in a book called Who I Am, and his is a really earnest, um, kind of soulful look at his life. Uh, and that's at number 23. That's been on the list for uh, a few weeks right now. So we have five music bios, or at least either memoirs or biographies of musicians. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think, so So with those, with and that's pretty much covering a lot of the nonfiction, at least two of the nonfiction categories uh, that I see right now. And with those biographies, are, are we talking like big hefty books? Are they little books? Is this something that you uh, need to devote a lot of time to reading? Or is it the kind of thing you can read in little pieces on your commute on the train? Yeah, they're, they're pretty accessible. I think Bruce is uh, comes in about four or 500 pages. Um, but this is, I, I think, what many consider to be the definitive biography of Bruce Springsteen. The others are your average 250, 300-page uh, mm-hmm. memoirs. So these are really written for, with the average reader in mind. They're not like scholarly tomes. No, 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 no. They're definitely uh, written in the voice of the uh, musician, and I think what with this with this batch of uh, uh, books, I, I think they really hit the mark. So are they full of gossip, juicy secrets? Some of them, yeah. Some of them, possibly, uh, you know, Rod Stewart's uh, maybe a little bit more gossipy than the others. Yeah. Uh, uh, Pete Townsend is definitely much more internal. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you very much for the rundown at the nonfiction, Mark. Well, thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox on Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, we are going to speak with author Eloisa James, also known as Mary Bly. She's the author of a great many romance novels and most recently has been turning fairy tales into romance novels. You'll be hearing from her about that and much more right up on Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. We are Publishers Weekly Book Reviews Editors, and we are bringing you the best book reviews and news and author interviews. Who are we interviewing today, Mark? Today we have Eloisa James, the pen name of Mary Bly. Uh, she's a romance writer, and uh, about two months ago she had a, the paperback uh, version of her book, Paris and Love, a nonfiction book published, and we have her on the show today. Well, welcome, Eloisa. Or Thank Mary. <laughs> which, Thanks for having me. <laughs> which name do you want us to use for you while, while we're sitting here chatting? Well, how about Eloisa? Because that's how you can find the book. All right. That works for me. Um, so I've, I've been following your career with a great deal of interest since I handle the romance book reviews. You've got this series of turning fairy tales into historical romances for modern readers. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, how you go about making that transformation happen. Well, I... It's something that came, my father's a poet, Robert Bly, and when I was growing up, he was rewriting fairy stories, which turned into a book called Iron John, which um, <clears throat> did very well, stayed on the New York Times for a while. And so I spent my childhood with him going at the supper table and saying, all right, where do you think Jack was really climbing to when he climbed? <laughs> you know, we would all sit around, you know, four teenagers and just roll our eyes. 
But now, these years later, I started thinking, I, I really like looking at a question, looking at a fairy tale and asking it a question that's not answered. Because, of course, fairy tales don't answer questions. They just say, and they lived happily ever after. Right. You, know, you have to believe once upon a time, a very long time ago. So they're really fun to rewrite because you have the structure. The reader expects that structure, which is the same thing for romance, and then you surprise them within that structure. So it's a challenge and it's interesting. That's great. So so you don't really see these original stories as sacred. You see them as fun playgrounds to play around in. Exactly. Yeah. I'm rewriting Rapunzel right now. I can't say there's anything sacred about it. I couldn't manage to get the hair. And for a while I had the, you know, the celery that's picked. I had that. But then it involved my heroine having a miscarriage. So the celery is gone. And now it is merging with Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) So I have Rapunzel, Romeo and Juliet, neither text being sacred at all Mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, I was go- I was going to say you're you're an academic, a professor of Shakespeare, and how does that intersect with your romance career now that you're public about both? Well, there's um, I guess they they mainly intersect in the same way they always did, which is that I teach you know great literature all day, and I don't have to worry about writing great literature because I write romance, and so <laughs> there's something that um, this wonderful writer in the 1600s said, Thomas Nash. He said. I have a vulgar muse who's despised and neglected. Mm-hmm. And I have to think, you know, yes, I have a vulgar muse. And that means I can, I can teach this wonderful literature during the day, and then I can go home and play with it at night. And no one cares because it's romance. And you've also been doing some shared novels with Julia Quinn and Connie Brockway. I just read the second one, The Lady Most Willing, which is coming out in January. That's a ton of fun. And I was wondering, you know, you have this shared novel format going on that's a little different from a traditional anthology. So what's that collaborative writing experience been like? It's really fun. I mean, you can see it coming through in the text. We we get together for that book. We were together in Seattle, and then we were again again in New York City, and we just write. And we we talk in the voices of our characters, so all the interstitial parts we write, and we kind of argue them out. And, and you know, the, the, the parts that we write end up being incredibly redolent of our writing styles. So, you know, Julia Quinn's characters are young and wonderful and fall in love and instantly, and I think they, like, kiss in a buttery, and, you know, <laughs> mine are incredibly tormented, and her her former fiancé fell out the window and, you know, ruined her reputation, and they get drunk in a stable. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah, but at least the three of us, um, we really respect each other's voice, and it's tremendous fun writing together. Again, I would say that's the wonderful thing about romance, is that you can really do all this stuff, and you're flying under the radar mm-hmm. in terms of what people think of literature. So you can play around endlessly writing a book with three people because no, you know, the more academic people don't consider it a real book anyway. So you can do whatever you want. Actually, the, the way you're describing your writing process sounds a little bit like a role-playing game. I'm imagining like the, the, romance, <laughs> the romance version of Dungeons & Dragons where it's yeah. like, you know, bodices and smooches or something. And, you know, and, right. instead you're, you're saying, well, my character is going to be in this encounter in the right. stables. Yeah. Right. Right. It's kind of like that. Julie's like, well, I've never played a very shy girl. My girl's going to be very shy because I've never, you know, I'm just like, okay, she's shy, you know. <laughs> so we just make them work together. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there is that kind of shared pleasure. Excellent. So I handled the uh, the nonfiction. And I remember when your book, uh, Paris and Love, came out, we, we called it Effervescent. Thank you. And how was it that 
you went from going to, how, how was the transition from writing fiction to writing nonfiction? This is your first nonfiction book other than your scholarship, right? Right. Yep. It's hard. Really? Say. Really? Prose is much harder to write. Well, it's the kind of thing I've been saying. I mean, the kind of fiction I write is just, it's its kind of joyful. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, I'm not saying it's not hard work, because it is. It's horribly hard work. But on the other hand, there isn't any burden of, um, you have to do it this way, or you have to do it that way. Whereas with the prose, all of my years of teaching composition came into play, and I, I revised every word in that thousands of times, which I do not do with novels. So you do, we're speaking with Eloisa James, a romance writer. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox from Publishers Weekly Radio. Eloisa was just telling us about her romances, and now Mark is grilling her on the nonfiction, her <laughs> memoir, Paris and Love. How did you come to choose Paris as a place to go? So uh, you sold your house, you were on right. sabbatical, and you took your entire family there. And as a Shakespeare scholar, perhaps I, I thought you might have gone to England. Why Paris? How did you settle on that? Uh, well, I it, it, it really came down to something very practical, mm-hmm. which is that we sold our house, we sold our cars, we were going abroad, my <laughs> husband's Italian. I didn't want to go to Italy. I've been to Italy. Right, sure, and, sure. And, you know, his whole family's <laughs> in Italy. I knew what that was. That was living next door to my mother-in-law, if not in the same apartment <laughs> with my mother-in-law. So it came down to which major cities had Italian public schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, Italy had a school in Barcelona, and they had a school in Paris. And for me, that was a no-brainer. I want to go to Barcelona, but Paris, you know, first. Right, right, sure. The minute we found that out, it was was decided that quickly. It's all right, we're going to Paris. And when you decided to write the book, you you wrote it under your name, your pen name, Eloisa James, rather than Mary Bly, which you write scholarship. What made you decide to, to choose that name? Well, actually, that's one of the ways in which publishers come to play, because mm-hmm. there were several publishers bidding on this book, and a publisher who did not win wanted it as Mary Bly, and was going to, uh, the editor was said, we're going to treat this as prose poetry. And I was like, oh, poetry. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're buying an apartment in New York, right, and we sold right. our house, we're trying to buy a apartment. I'm like, whatever, <laughs> I'll right. do anything. Um, but then Susan Camel, who's the publisher of Random House, mm-hmm. who's absolutely wonderful, actually ended up, um, you know, scooping the book at the end. And mm. she is a big Eloisa James fan. And wonderful. wanted the more of the Eloisa James voice and not prose poetry. And so there it came out under Eloisa. And because that auction happened halfway through the year in Paris, she had a tremendous effect on the shaping of the book. She would she said to me, for example, I need a darker note. And I wrote the essay for Rose. Hmm. That is a lot of people's favorite essay in that book. Right. But it never wouldn't have occurred to me without Susan saying, I need a darker note. I've, I'm, I'm drowning in chocolate. <laughs> well, one one does sometimes have that feeling when going to Paris. Yeah. And writing it under Eloisa, did that free you up a little bit to write the nonfiction? No, not really. Because okay. if you're if you're writing memoir, it's it, that's the horrible thing about it. It's it has to be true, and I found that very hard. Right. Right. To try to figure out is this word more true than this one, or which one is not treacly but real. 
And, and that, from that point of view, it didn't matter whose name was on it. I it was see. Still me. Sure. I, mean, I see because you're writing nonfiction under your right. fictional name. I didn't know if that lended any sense, uh, other, other kind of sensibility. Yeah, well, the academics it, are really into that. They're like, yeah, sure. We have the production of a voice, and now that person, the you know, the, the cipher now has its own memoir. Right. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and we're and, and we're back to role playing. And we're back yeah. to role playing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, being in, uh, I, I think you 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 write a lot about. Your father in 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 the memoir in Paris in love. Uh, what was the connection between Paris and uh, your father? Oh, when I was growing up, he he, we grew up in a farm in Minnesota. We had no mm. money, and every once in a while, he would write off to Harper Collins, which ironically is the publisher of my novels, and they would send him a big advance check, and we would go abroad. <laughs> so I have distinct memories of got a big check from Harper Collins, and we went to Paris for a year. Oh, fantastic. And that is, you know, one of my strongest childhood memories, being in Paris that year. I remember the bridges. I remember, you know, uh, I, I just have kids' memories of being there. And um, mm-hmm. so I think, ironically, years later, you know, I got a big advance check and we went to Paris. So my father was is a tremendous influence on my life. And so sometimes I feel as if I'm kind of um, replaying a, a path that he laid down for me. So the fairy tales. The visit to Paris, the book, certainly. Sure, so, sure. He's oh. a much better writer. but Wonderful. And how was it traveling with your kids to Paris? And they, so they were going to the Italian school? They went to the Italian school in Paris, right. yep. Oh, it's fine. I mean, they had a lot of trouble in the school and then nearly failed out. But, you know, it made for a funny story in the book. <laughs> sure, sure. So. <laughs> Someday we will all look back on this and laugh. <laughs> yes, yeah. That's what right, I tell right. them frequently. Only they're now teenagers, so you can't tell them anything, but... Someday. Sure, sure. And uh, in in what was your most memorable moment in Paris? My most memorable moment. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, you can pick out any memorable moment. We won't know food. that it's not the most memorable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I enjoyed the most was I would drop Anna off on one side of Paris and I would walk all the way home. And some days it would take an hour and some days it would take two hours because when I was free from the university and I didn't have you know, my job to go to every mm-hmm. day, I could turn down a street, any street, right? Sure. I had this kind of freedom that I, that you don't have as an adult. You're always trying to get home to make dinner or go to the job or do whatever. And that year in Paris was really, there was a sense of stolen time that oh. I, could, I, I could play, I could get lost. So I got lost. I would say the best moments were the ones where I was lost. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Kind of like losing yourself in a novel. Yeah. Were, were you working on romance novels while you were there, like at the same time that you were writing the memoir? Were you sort of doing that in parallel, or did you take a break from the romances for the memoir? No, no. I wrote. I had a lot of fun. I wrote a book called When Beauty Came the Beast, which um, was it, 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 it was very complicated. sounds complicated. It was a romance, <laughs> and then it was Beauty Tames the Beast, and then I put the whole, I shaped the plot around the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, mm-hmm. so that poem comes and goes all the way through, and it's sort of the underlying thread. And, you know, that kind of complicated novel, it was wonderful to actually have the time to write it and to, to, to be so mm-hmm. complicated with it. You know, the way, the way literary... Fiction people are who don't have jobs. Right. <laughs> they do this stuff. Those all the lucky time. literary fiction sure, people. Sure. <laughs> have you thought of uh, ever uh, creating fiction around any of Shakespeare's sonnets? I haven't. You know, the ones I like were all written for a man, and in my genre, male male romance wouldn't sell so well. That's <laughs> true. Maybe, well, you know, you know. I don't know that that's true anymore. I think I think we're seeing a little bit of a sea change in the genre. Well, I think it. I mean, it definitely sells, but. 
my, I, I like re- Regency. I write Regency romance, and that's where my people mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. And I have had a um, bunch of gay characters, and um, I, I get a dismaying amount of mail about them. So A dismaying amount of unhappy mail? mail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just... Just male. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to do that in a historical setting and have it still be an uplifting story. That was not an uplifting time for gay people. No. No. It's an uplifting time if you're rich enough. Right. So my my gay characters have always been rich and joyous, and, you know, that works. But, frankly, I'm, I mean, the advice that I give writers the most is you have to write what you want to read, and you have to write something you know about. We've all heard this a million times. I'm not gay. I'm very straight. So... This is what works for me, and probably I wouldn't be able to write that with any sort of verisimilitude. And I wanted to ask uh, about your your kind of coming out as Mary Bly. I mean, I know that uh, your your colleagues at Fordham University uh, didn't. I, I mean, is it true they didn't know that you were a romance writer? You were the Eloisa James. No, they had no idea. And I I hear this wonderful story. I think that you were. Uh, it, it kind of came out at a lecture, and you're known as. Eloisa James with your glasses or without your glasses? <laughs> I, I used to. <laughs> there was a disguise, a little bit of a disguise, I think. It was very I, Clark Kent and Right, right. <laughs> I used to have sort of a much more pink wardrobe. And I had like, a pink tweed jacket that I liked a lot and a skirt. And I would put on my contacts and I would go out and do like talks for the Romance Writers of America. And there was something where one... Within two weeks, the Shakespeare Association met and the Romance Writers of America met. So I was walking down the street with a friend of mine who's a Shakespeare professor at Columbia, and she was like, Mary, there's all these people over there in that window, and they're all waving at you. And I looked over, and clearly a load of romance readers and romance writers like, I don't know what this is about. I just like, walked on. Um, and then later, Julie was very angry at me for not to. So how could you not tell me? Well, I wasn't telling anyone. It was kind of my own little secret. It was kind of fun. And did you find that uh, your colleagues secretly uh, uh, enjoyed the uh, romance? You know what? They didn't give a, They don't they care. They don't care. But I have to say, they don't care. But on the other hand, I was in a meeting today, and something came up, and I said, oh, somebody told me she was writing porn, and one of my male colleagues turned to me and said, she said that to you? <laughs> so there is a way in which you have to grit your teeth and just, sure. you know, realize that, again, it's the vulgar and despised muse. And I am in the hotbed of where that dis- that uh, negative opinion comes from. Well, and here we have you know, Shakespeare was popular writing at the time and then romance, which is, I mean, populist fiction for our time now. Mm-hmm. So we're speaking with Eloisa James, uh, author of uh, most recently a, uh, well, uh, Paris in Love, uh, but romance writer, author of uh, The Lady Most Willing. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun having you on, Eloisa. Thank you so much. I'm Rose Fox. This is Publishers Weekly Radio. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we are going to talk with our fellow Publishers Weekly Reviews editor, John Sellers. He handles the children's books, and he's going to tell us all about what's happening in the stores right now as we prepare for the holidays. Stay tuned.
Welcome back. This is Rose Fox, Publishers Weekly Reviews Editor on Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly. Welcome. We have John Sellers today on the phone with us from uh, Publishers Weekly. Hi, John. Uh, hi. Hi. Very glad that you could join us. Um, Absolutely happy to. And uh, I'm, I'm told that you have a few things to tell us about what the, the hot children's and young adult books are, uh, especially for people who might be thinking about holiday gift shopping right now. Absolutely. Um, well, the first uh, the first book that definitely is at the top of the list, I would say, is the brand new um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid book from Jeff Kinney. Um, it's called The Third Wheel, and it's the seventh book in the series. Um, seven already? Um, yeah, seven wow. years. <laughs> wow. One, I think one a year is uh, what the output is. Yeah, because we I was right. just looking at the bestseller list, and, and number six is still on there, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. That's pretty and, impressive. Um, so the, the, the seventh one, which just came out, you know, literally two weeks ago, um, according to Nielsen BookScan, has already sold more than 600,000 copies in those first two weeks. Wow. So it's um, far and away the biggest title. The other, several of the other backlist titles also remain big sellers. And, that's, you know, I think that's going to be the uh, probably one of the biggest uh, books for the holidays. Um, we so, have some, so some John, of our, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I, I haven't actually read those books. So tell me a little bit about what makes this series appealing. Like, what, what makes it so popular? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they really are fantastic. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I think these these books um, sort of paved the way for a whole sort of uh, still growing segment of middle grade fiction, which are these really heavily illustrated, um, you know, stories, uh, often uh, often with a diary style or journal style format accompanying them, but you know they've been really, really popular, especially with um, maybe struggling readers. Um, just the combination of the art and the text um, mm-hmm. is phenomenal. That spawned you know a whole slew of books with similar uh, formatting. Um, but the thing with this series in particular is I think that uh, Jeff Kinney really, really has a handle on the sort of middle grade humor and the sort of experiences that um, kids can really connect with. Um, I, I believe that he actually had sort of kept his own sort of diaries um, from his own childhood and has used a lot of that sort of you know, raw material to kind of spawn these books. And uh, I think having some, some of those sort of like authentic little details and memories of, you know, from his own life at that time has really made the humor of these books especially spot on. Yeah, they're really uh, irreverent, I, I think, in a middle grade level. And I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm reading this to my son right now, who is only seven years old. But mm-hmm. uh, so it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, older, you know, old for him. Sure. But I, he seems to, he's, he's an Emerging reader right now, and um, I, he's enjoying picking out words and putting sentences together. Though, though I kind of cringe, of course, because they're uh, you know often you know gra- grammatically incorrect. I mean, just 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 because it's kind of like middle grade uh, uh, chatting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, yeah, I enjoy them. Right now we're reading Cabin Fever. Okay, great. Uh, which, yeah, that was, I think, maybe last year's uh, book. Right, I think it was. I think it was. a whole big, like, you know, winter storm snow-themed uh, tour right. that went along Right, with that exactly. One. What is the theme of this book? Um, so this one has a bit of, like, a Valentine's Day hook. Um, oh. uh, there's, you know, as with pretty much all the books in this series, he, um, Greg's um, journal narratives really bounce around a lot, you know, from one you know, kind of mini drama to the next. But this one has a sort of a Valentine's Day hook where he, right. there's a Valentine's Day dance. He's sort of realizing that he's got to, you know, get some sort of uh, uh, date for, for, the, for the dance. Um, so that, that's sort of, the, the, sort of an overriding theme on this one. Um, another interesting kind of side note, um, last week being uh, Thanksgiving, right. this was the, uh, the third year in a row in which a, uh, a Greg Hefley balloon was uh, made its appearance in the uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, That's how you know when you've really made it. You've really hit the big time. And uh, interestingly enough, another um, 
sort of uh, big holiday children's book uh, was also um, in, in the parade this year uh, for the first time, and that's uh, The Elf on the Shelf. Um, oh, and, right, of course. And uh, Mark, I know you've got kids. Are you uh, familiar yeah. with, uh, with that one? Yes, we're, we're actually going to be hiding the elf uh, pretty soon, once okay, we bring so out the you're, advent You're calendar. participating in that, uh, that holiday tradition. Then. Well, we, I think we will. I know we have it, uh, and oh. so I think we're, we'll finally do it this year. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. no, no, <laughs> but, um, no, hang, hang on a second. Um, Jewish atheist here. Can somebody explain this? <laughs> All right. So uh, Elf on the Shelf, this is, I mean— this is, I think, one of the bigger sort of self-publishing success stories in, in the, the children's book uh, uh, side, of, or at least on the picture book side of things. Um, it has, I believe, sold at least uh, one and a half million copies since it's been in print, and it was self-published by a uh, mother-daughter author team a few years ago. Um, and the book comes packaged with a, a toy elf, like a stuffed-type uh, toy elf. Um, and the idea is that this this elf is Santa, Santa's helper and. Um, he's going to report back on good behavior and bad behavior to Santa. And so what parents are supposed to do um, is that you actually sort of move the, the elf around the house at night sort of to kind of underline the idea that, you know, he's, the elf has been gone you know, overnight and has reported back to Santa and now he's back. That sounds um, creepy as hell. Well, you know, I have to tell you, it, 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 and you're not... This is, this is like Edward watching Bella. No, you are, you are, you're not the only one who thinks that. This is a very popular holiday purchase, but it has definitely been divisive. There are... Oh, this is like plenty, Big Brother. Totally. There are a lot of parents who see a real sort of strange sort of surveillance uh, aspect to this, like yeah. elf spy. Um, so not not. I, I not mean, not, not criticizing your parenting skills here, Mark. I'm just like... like well, we me? haven't done it yet. So we'll see how it works. <laughs> yeah, so that is it is true that it's a little bit divisive. But yes, for the very first time, uh, Elf on the Shelf also appeared in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and so for a self-published Looming uh, over everyone. phenomenon, especially that's a pretty uh, pretty big coup as well. This is Rose Fox on Publishers Weekly Radio, and I'm Mark Rotella, and we're speaking with children's book reviews editor John Sellers. So, um, John, when you I want to go back a little bit when you say middle grade. Um, I feel like that's a relatively new designation. Is that the same thing that we called chapter books when I was growing up? What, is, um, what does that mean? To a degree, yes. I mean, middle grade is sort of, you know, it, 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 it is kind of wide-ranging. And uh, within middle grade, there are uh, different sort of, uh, I guess, sub-distinctions where you would have sort of chapter books and these sort of early readers on the younger end of things. Um, but I'd say the core of middle grade, those books are really aimed at uh, sort of an 8- to 12-year-old is sort of what I, what I would see the most often. You'll see the other ones that are sort of aimed at 10 and up. Those are sort of the, the way it breaks down. But we're talking about chapter books, and we're talking about um, you know, things that are aimed not quite at teens, but at the sort of middle, middle school age reader. Right. So this, this is books for tweens. Absolutely. Got it. So what, what else do you have for us? All right. Well, um, you know, again, keep, continue to think about, uh, you know, what um, the holidays might bring. Certain titles, you know, always, you know, just sort of leap back onto the uh, the bestseller list this time of year. Uh, talking about things like The Grinch, uh, mm-hmm. The Polar Express, certainly uh, big ones. Um, other sort of picture books, uh, those are sort of holiday classics that, you know, we've all been reading for and those decades. are and those are those are picture books that we're those are picture about, books. Right? I'm sorry, yeah, right. I, I moved back down a little bit to right. the sure, sure. things, I guess. Um, in keeping with Elf on the Shelf, which is right. a picture book. Right. Um, then, the, you know, in addition to those sort of more longstanding holiday books, there's also um, sort of newer newer characters are also you know reappearing in uh, holiday adventures. You've got Pete the Cat, Bad Kitty, Llama Llama. Um, those are certainly holiday titles that you know it's pretty likely to see uh, popping back onto the bestseller list this mm-hmm. time of year. Um, we have some of the which llama llama any because I know there's a series of llama, it, there's llama. a series of one and there's a brand new um, holiday title I don't have the, the exact title in front of me 
but um, they they have you know sort of expanded that series into a little bit of a, a holiday. Uh, oh right, okay. Departure to holiday drama, I'm sure, is involved. Uh, so you've you've been noticing uh, children's books, maybe series of books that uh, are, are any of them publishing towards the the holidays th- this time of year. Absolutely, I mean, with every holiday. Um, you you get a whole slew of titles uh, published. I think the the, the holiday um, holiday theme books are sort of strong sellers in general. So you'll always see publishers um, out you know laying out a ton of titles. In fact, just uh, today I was taking a look at uh, the crop of Valentine's Day books, which is a whole other thing. But uh, right. you know, with every holiday, there's there's always a big push to uh, especially on the picture book side of things to you know fuel titles that are holiday specific and they sort of reemerge at a certain time every year. Sure. Um, Sure. So, and then in terms of non-holiday titles, I think um, on the picture book side, uh, John Klassen uh, this year had his uh, the second, I believe, uh, picture book that he both wrote and illustrated called "This Is Not My Hat." Um, it's a companion to his uh, 2011 picture book, "I Want My Hat Back." Both of them were. I was going to say that's the ri- one with the bear, right? Yes, absolutely. So the first one was the one with the bear. This Even I know one, this. This new one is about a fish. Uh, this is not my hat, and it's narrated <laughs> from the point of the the, the fish who is actually stealing the hat. So um has the same sort of, you know, kind of pared-down narrative, uh, same sort of wicked sense of humor as the mm-hmm. previous book, both um, critically acclaimed books, both, I think, um, were PW's best books of, uh, among you know, PW's right. best books of the year, both this year and last year. Right. So those are very popular, especially with, I think, uh, independent booksellers, books they sort of love to hand-sell. Um, and how about so, on the, the books for older kids? Absolutely. So... On the, uh, the young adult side, which we haven't really talked about just yet, um, dystopias, you know, are really still kind of the big thing of the moment. Um, I was looking at sort of the book scan uh, numbers. Uh, the Hunger Game books, you know, are continuing to sell really well. Right. You know, especially having you know the, the first movie out, big deal there. It, they just it's sort of a thing that just continues to propel a lot of sales. Um, and then similar. Uh, kind of dystopian type trilogies and that sort of thing that have followed sort of in the wake of the Hunger Games are also doing quite well. You've got um, the Matched Trilogy by Ellie Condi uh, that just wrapped up, I believe, in November, I guess mm-hmm. this month. Um, it's always hard to keep the, sure. <laughs> the month straight in our business. Yeah, exactly. But, um, we were at Publishers Weekly, especially in the review section, we work several months ahead of time. So yeah. we've, we've, we've seen and read and analyzed and critiqued these books well before their publication date. So when we see them, we, we think, wait, this has already been out, right? Exactly. Kind of forget but it, yeah, right, right. So that that trilogy just wrapped up with the third book, which was called mm-hmm. Reached. Um, and then there's another series from Harper Collins, uh, the Div- Divergent series by Veronica Roth. Those um, in the in the wake of the Hunger Games, I think those two series in particular have really um, found their audiences in a big way and are you know certainly going to be you know, big sellers both for the holidays and they've they've been doing well. You know, some, both of those series have been out for a couple of years. They're sort of mid series right now. I think they'll continue to do well. Um, and and you know, beyond those, you can get away from the uh, dystopia a little bit. I think um, there are certain books that have done well all year round, and I think they will you know, also be uh, big holiday purchases. The ones that I'm thinking about would be uh, John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, mm-hmm. um, R.J. Palaccio's Wonder, which is a, a middle-grade book, actually, and uh, David Levithan's Every Day. Um, I would expect those to, to uh, sort of be probably pretty prominently featured in, you know, holiday book uh, uh in, in, within the bookstores. Sure. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. This is Rose Fox. Uh, we're talking with our fellow Publishers Weekly editor, John Sellers, who's been talking about the hot books this holiday season for children 
middle grade readers and young adults. And John, I want to go back for a minute to uh, what you said about dystopias still being hot. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that. What, what, what is it that all those books that you described, um, the Hunger Games books and uh, L.A. Condi's series and the, the Divergent books, what do they all have in common that keep on pulling in those readers? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a fascinating thing. I mean, I think many people will credit the, uh, the Hunger Games as really sort of kicking off this particular uh, uh, sort of wave of books, which is, you know, it goes well beyond these few series that I mentioned. I mean, there's, you know, not a, really not a week goes by that I'm not you know, reviewing, we're not reviewing some form of dystopia. And when um, was the first Hunger Games? Um, gosh, when was that? It's going back a few years now. Right, um, yeah. A, Long enough they had time to make a movie out of it. Yeah, so. that's exactly. True. <laughs> it's, 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 it's been yeah. a few years. Yeah, because the third book, I think, came out uh, you know, last year. So it's, it's been a few right. years. Maybe um, as far back as 09 is when it all started right, up, maybe, right. something like that. Um, but in any case, um, yes, yeah, so these are, these are you know, stories of you know, societies that have gone wrong. It's the stories of insurrection, of you know, teens sort of fighting back against a... Uh, you know, a broken system and a broken world. Um, there's environmental devastation. There's um, controlling of thoughts, emotions. You know, basically, mm-hmm. I think it sort of plays into a feeling that's very common among teenagers and or and, and among all people that where you're at a certain point in your life where you feel like your life is not entirely your own. Um, that there are these controlling forces, whether it's parents or mm-hmm. school or any number of other things that sort of you know, you're being told what you can and can't do. And I think these sort of Take that, take some of those uh, feelings, and you know, expound it on in a really sort of big, dramatic way. Um, and you know, these are stories of re- rebellion and uh, you know, really fighting back against the system. So I think those are themes that are very appealing. <laughs> have you found that when this age level, the books have become more sophisticated, or at least the readership has become more sophisticated, um, or at least more culturally aware? Um, it's possible. I mean, I, I, I do think, and in in for a while, that you know, there's just really some amazing writing going on. Uh, in the in the young adult world, um, I think uh, there's an awareness, and I think there's awareness of it that I certainly don't remember from my uh, youth. I mean, obviously you know, there were books for teens being published, sure. you know, in decades past as well. But there just seems to be a real awareness, um, certainly among kids, uh, mm-hmm. of you know the, this kind of trove of books being published for them. Mm-hmm. But but certainly the just the young adult community among you know authors and the sort of surrounding community of bloggers and that sort of thing is just an extremely extremely active uh, vocal community. And I think it sort of has really sort of propelled um, both an interest in it, but also, uh, I don't know, sort of raised the quality, of, you know, kind of uh, yeah. raised the bar all around. I just think there's really some really uh, strong stuff being published uh, and lots of just a, a real diversity of options, depending on what, you know, your interests are. And young adult is still a growing, it's a very much a growing segment of the book publishing world of kids' books. Absolutely. And yeah. I think, um, you know, especially in, in um, you know, the past few years when, you know, all of publishing has been sort of working its way through some, you know, less than ideal economic times, I think that books for um, for children and, te- and teens especially have right. remained uh, kind of a steadier, uh, you know, stronger, safer uh, part of the market that didn't quite maybe get hit as hard. Um, I think in part that's probably uh, due to the fact that even in, you know, a recession, parents are still going to want to buy books for their kids. They're still going to want their kids reading. And so it might be a little more insulated um, from some of those uh, things. You might, you know, an adult might not you know, buy that $35 hardcover for themselves, but, if, right. but especially if you've got, you know, um, mm-hmm. some paperback YA fiction, you know, 
that you can load up on and things like that. I think that parents are more willing to uh, sure, yeah, especially with. especially with paperback, even the hardcover. It's I mean the the price of of say a, a, you know any kind of toy. I mean it's even less expensive and and uh, mm-hmm. enables parents to spend more. Absolutely, and, and you know that's I mean, you know, publishing is competing not yeah. just against right. You know the books that are out there, other other books. You're competing against video games and apps and anything else that might you know, really occupy kids' time. So if you can spend 99 cents on Angry Birds that has, you know, a thousand oh, levels or something, gosh. or you can, you oh. know, that, that's, that's a tough... Uh, Opium thing. for the yeah. masses. Yeah. So, and I've used it. <laughs> so uh, uh, you, you mentioned a diversity of options, John. Does, is that reflected in diverse characters, diverse settings? Um, is, is that, as, um, as the market gets bigger, does that mean it gets more inclusive? It, it's, it's getting there. I wouldn't say it's, you know, I, I wouldn't say we're at a point where the... Uh, the array of titles out there really matches the uh, the diversity of the population, but um, but it is getting there, and I do think there are you see more and more of um, uh, a diversity of characters um, within within the fiction that you're seeing out there. Um, like I said, it's not it's not where you'd want it to be, but I do think with every passing year, I feel like I see more and more. Um, last this past year was actually a pretty good year for. Um, uh, GLBT uh, YA fiction, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, great titles there this past year, um, and uh, yeah, I, I do think publishers are very aware of it, um, and they're you know continually agents as well, trying to you know find uh, a variety of voices. Um, and because think, there's an interest in it as well, I think so. Uh, um, but I think there's also still a long way to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I figure you know teens who are in minorities, and especially who are in in situations where um, they may be picked on or looked down on because they're members of whatever visible minority group or because they choose to come out as a member of a minority, um, mm-hmm. you know, they, they may be particularly in need of the kind of support and role models um, that these kinds of books provide. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, I would not, not so much from a, um, uh, like a standpoint of ethnicity or that sort of thing, but there, there has been a, certainly a surge in uh, books revolving around the topic of uh, bullying, um, which uh, I think we even did a, a big piece on it a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, I've, uh, I've, no, I've noticed this in nonfiction as well. I mean, we had, uh, especially in, in light of the movie, Bully, that came out, or I'm sorry, the documentary about three months ago, four months mm-hmm. ago maybe it was longer than that. There are about three or four uh, books on bullying uh, geared towards parents and uh, educators and and so you're saying this is being reflected in in uh, children's book as well? I'd say so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very very common theme, pretty much at any at any age level. You could find a uh, you know a real uh, you know a diversity again of uh, of books that might mm-hmm. tackle bullying or at least have it as a theme in one way or another. So. Um, I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox on Publishers Weekly Radio. Um, John, we have time for just one more question. Um, okay. I just uh, wanted to know a little bit, again, um, I'm going to hammer on that diversity theme. You had talked about Christmas books. Uh, any big Hanukkah books coming out this year? Any other holidays since we call oh. it the holiday season? <laughs> Is it all just Christmas this year? Good question. I would say, I mean, we, you know, we, we rounded up our holiday titles uh, probably a couple months ago now. Um, comparatively, you know, I think our, our Christmas listings, maybe it was, uh, I don't know, three or four pages in the magazine. Um, our religion editor actually handled the Hanukkah titles, um, comparatively few, just a few, and all picture books as far as I know. Um, not that there's that many uh, Christmas-themed novels in the wild world. There's usually a couple each year, but not very big. Um, not a big, not, not quite as a, nothing I could really share on that end. Um, I, as far as the new year goes, though, um, there are a few you know, big books that I'm at least looking forward to. Um, what do we, we have? Um, 
in February, uh, HarperCollins is going to be publishing uh, uh, Marie Sendak's final book. Oh, called, wow. Uh, My Brother's Book. Uh, we just gave it a star review a week or two ago. Um, it's an ode to his late brother. Um, that, that's a, uh, that'll be a big deal for them. And I would say that it's as much for adults as for kids, if not more so. It's, it's pretty adult and sort of it's references and themes. There's a lot of, uh, there's some kind of references to Shakespeare and Blake and that sort of thing. It, it's a pretty adult book, but it's, uh, you know, it's his last one. I think that'll be a big deal. Um, I'm also in the middle of reading a YA romance called Eleanor and Park. It's mm-hmm. by a first-time YA author named Rainbow Rowell. It's set in the 1980s, uh, so there's a lot of uh, references to the comic books and music of the time period. Oh, neat. Um, a lot of fun. I you know, much fondness for that decade myself, mm-hmm. and uh, I know the publisher has some big hopes for it, and so far it's been uh, pretty enjoyable. Well, maybe we'll have you back on the air in February to tell us about how those are doing. Perfect. Especially with some of these Valentine books as well. Well, this is John Sellers. Uh, We're speaking with John Sellers from Publishers Weekly. Uh, He's the children's book reviews editor. Uh, Thanks so much for being on the show with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. This is Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Tune in next week for another episode where we tell you all about what's going on in the book world. Everything you needed to know, stuff you didn't even know you needed to know. We'll talk to you then. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.